With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, I'm Eddie Gibbs and welcome to The King and AI, a new podcast from Anfield Index Pro and one which, based on your interest and feedback, we hope can become something of a regular staple of your acoustic diet as the season progresses. So what is the king in AI, I hear you ask, shuddering with excitement. Well, the whole idea came about a few weeks ago when one of our podcast regulars suggested it may be worth inviting his dad onto one of our podcasts. Now in itself, and whilst we all love our dads, you'd be forgiven for thinking, hmm, nothing to see here. But when the IO Pro regular is head coach of Miami FC, Mr. Paul Dalgleish, I'm sure you don't need to be Pablo Picasso to join the dots. Therefore, it's my distinct and somewhat humbled honour to welcome to the show the player, the manager, the legend, and now for the first time, the podcaster, Sir Kenny Dalgleish. So firstly, how are you, Sir Kenny, and excited by this uh, Liverpool table-topping start to the season? Yeah, but you've terrified me, Ed, with the build-up. I don't think <laughs> hey. I'll be able to live up to that. And listen, listen. Yeah, can't use these big words. <laughs> and also, if the if the you know now you're used to things being named after you, they, you're gonna name the microphone after. It needs to be the Sir Kenny Dalgleish microphone. <laughs> uh, no, Sir Mike. Or, or you're not doing it. You're not doing it. You refuse. Yeah. You you get you get back in the beach. <laughs> Mike and I will be okay. <laughs> no, the, the, for the great start to the season. Um, no, just the the results and the fact of no lost any goals but just just the fact that they just look um, so complete and we've not seen uh, Fabinho yet but Keita has come in and settled in right away so as a team and they look they look really comfortable together and, and they look really happy with each other which is hugely important and the results yesterday when Man City go to Wolves and draw uh that was normally us last year, and they would win in the game that came after it for themselves. So we have done the reverse to them, and I think I think that's important. That um, if they're going to drop points, we've got to capitalise on that and take the three points from the game that we're playing. Dad, can I ask you a question? Do you think, right? You know, it's funny, isn't it? I think the the amount of goodwill in the off season towards Liverpool has been uh, infectious, really, and contagious, and and just even for me that. Obviously, we've been watching Liverpool for a long time and going to the games for a long time, but it's it's the best feeling I've ever kind of kind of felt around the club at this moment in time. Do you feel that being in the club as well? It just yeah, positivity uh, think, everywhere. I think everything about the club comes for uh, for the example that Jurgen sets. I mean, he's he's got a good attitude to life, uh, and he's got fantastic respect for everybody in and around the club, not just the, the players, but I think the people at the club uh, who are working in other areas that he's got to deal with and deal with him. I think that he's been he's been very, very good with them as well. So the, the feel-good atmosphere in and around the club is set by him and it's, it's fantastic to see it. And you feel really comfortable. I mean, you always feel comfortable going to Anfield anyway, but when the game's on, you feel more you feel more comfortable now than what you've done before. What were your feelings on that one yesterday, Paul? You know, it, it, I just felt uh, I, I was texting the group earlier where I thought, you know, uh, there's just something, there's a feeling about this season that's different to any season before, and that, that's why I asked the question. As my dad said earlier, when Man City keep hitting the woodwork, you know, don't get penalties. That was us. We were always the unlucky team. For years and years and years, we we kind of would 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 kind of play well and lose games or draw games. And now we've won the last two games without being at our best. 
but we're winning and putting points on the board. And, and I've spoke about it with Rosie before on the pod. It's, it's a great habit and it's something that Man United did for years and, and something your team dad did when, when you played at Liverpool. You didn't always yeah. play well, but you found a way to win. But I don't think we've been unlucky, Paul. I think we've, sometimes we've just not been good enough. And I think yeah. right at this moment in time, uh, we do we do feel as if this, by the way, this could really be it. I mean, every year it seems to be the same quote, but I think this one, it seems a wee bit more realistic. Yeah, I saw you put that in the Sunday Post column that you're tipping Liverpool, but you think you've tipped them every time for the last 28 years or something. Well, I'm going to be right once. (laughs) (laughs) But there there definitely is a feel good. And the thing about, but they're giving them great confidence going into this year, was the three times we beat uh, Man City last year. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the other one, we started the game really well, but uh, obviously Manny gets sent off, uh, and that didn't help us. So, um, but before that, we, we looked uh, really comfortable. And I don't think Man City particularly enjoy playing against us because I think you're going to go to the measure of them. Yeah, I think the pressing stats were 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 off the box for the, that first Man City game at Anfield last year. Paul, I mean, you spoke about it at the time it was uh, that was where that was almost the coming of age game, wasn't it? Yeah, I think we ran out of gas though at the end of the game when they they came back into it. Uh, but I think now what what you've got is players that have played this way for a long period of time under Jurgen Klopp. And, and I remember speaking to my dad after the first game of the season, and the first thing you said, Dad, was they look fit. They're really, really fit. Mm-hmm. And and I do think that the players now are mentally prepared to do the work for ninety minutes because I can tell you it's. It's phenomenal. It's not just the distance that they cover, but it's the intensity that they cover the distance at, the amount of sprints that they have to perform to, to do it. So um, I, I do think that it's it's uh, something that the team can do for for longer periods now than, than every season that the clock goes on. He'll get more and more of his identity in the team. Do you know, for me, Nona was as good as anybody we had last year. Maybe you could be more Sally. Maybe he'd be an exception. But Milner was brilliant, and this year he started the same. He's been everywhere in the three games. Uh, he's a he's real good professional, a real good example. And I think I think the three guys in the middle of the pitch yesterday, Keita, Wijnaldum, and and Milner, were a huge difference. They made the difference. And I think now that this year we look and you step on the pitch. And you seem as if you've got a really good foundation with the goalkeeper in the back four, and they seem really settled in. You've got two fullbacks who are young, but two fullbacks who can deliver a cross into the box and cause a bit of problems. Uh, we Andy whipped him in yesterday, and Trent hit the bar with a free kick, and then the two of them joined up for a chance late on in the yeah. game. So I think the whole thing looks really comfortable, and they two can only do that and allow you express themselves if somebody else is doing a bit of defensive work when they get there. And Milner falls in, Jeannie falls in uh, and Keith is a really good footballer, great feet and looks as if he's got a wee bit of pace and uh, he's not under pressure to get a goal but I'm sure if he gets a goal that'll give him a huge lift as well. Yeah, good to see you. and it's always pleasing when a, a Glaswegian and a Liverpudlian are providing the fuel from the front, front from the wings. I always like that, so it's a it's a nice foundation going forward. And we'll we'll obviously talk more. Wait about... a minute, who's a who's a Liverpudlian? <laughs> Mister Alexander Trent. Arnold. Trent. Oh, he's talking about the fullbacks. Oh, I thought us. you were talking about us. I'm, hey, I'm I'm a wolf. I'm, I'm, I was born in Glasgow, but I'm brought up in Southport, so that'd be I'm officially a wolf. Yeah, but you're still a Scotland, so you're still a Scotland supporter. I know. Well, yeah. He's no fixed board. <laughs> yeah. I was an Air Force kid, so I was dotted here, there, and everywhere. That's that's why my accent's such a such a car crash. So for this first show, we wanted to take a bit of a dive into football management, in particular Kenny's two stints in the Anfield hot seat. We'll also ask Paul for some of his recollections along the way. And lingering somewhere in the background, twiddling his knobs, will be our esteemed producer, Gags Tandon, who I'm sure, in his eagerness to be involved in his groundbreaking new show, won't be shy in interjecting his own wisdom whenever he feels the need to do so. So, uh, so Kenny, first fell as Liverpool manager, 1985 to 1991, becoming player manager following Heysel and his re- resignation of Joe Fagan. 
It was something of a euphoric period for the club, winning three league titles, one of which in your first season was the first league and FA Cup double. So when in that incredible 1986 season drew to a close, were you thinking football management? Easy this? About me? Yeah. Just the end of me. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's it's never easy, but it's made an awful lot easier uh, when when you've got staff that's in and around you and I don't just mean on the football side of it uh, Ronnie Moran Roy Evans were there uh, old Tom Saunders shared the desk in, in my office with myself because his, his wisdom I thought I'd bring him in and old Bob Paisley was in an office upstairs uh, if anybody during the summer we went in one day and Bob was in and I said Bob why do we need to be in it's summer he says somebody might phone I said, Bob, I've got a phone in the house. I said, they can, <laughs> they can phone me, tell me, don't need to be sitting here twiddling my thumbs. He says, no, no, you've got to be here. I says, okay. And then you've got Peter Robinson upstairs, who was the best uh, administrator in the footballing world. He was fantastic. Um, so there was a, there was a huge blanket, comfort blanket around about us, and. All you had to do then was, was go on with the players and, and pick the team that's going to win the game more often than lose. And, uh, as I say, it's no pleasant. I knew the dressing room and I knew what the players would be feeling if they weren't playing. But then they also knew what like I was and, and, and they knew that what they were getting as a person because I'd been part of that dressing room for a long time. So uh, the management... It wasn't easy. It was as much of a surprise to me as it must have been to many other people that they offered me the job. But it was a fantastic compliment to, to be to be asked. So I thought I would take a chance. And if the worst came to the worst, I'd just go back to being a player. Now, Paul, I distinctly seem to recall the May 1986 cover of Shoot magazine featuring a picture of the nine-year-old Paul Dalglish on that bus parade holding the FA Cup alongside your dad who was holding the league trophy. Now, me being the same age as you, I remember well the excitement I felt and probably for the first time in my life just how proud I was to be one of the kids who supported Liverpool in the school playground. So being a lot closer to everything that was happening at the time, what were your memories of 1986 and that incredible double winning season? Well, I think my mum liked to buy Lacoste tracksuits. That's true. I think I was wearing a Lacoste tracksuit at the time. So, uh, no, I remember. So when when Liverpool were playing in the FA Cup, we used to go to the games, and and uh, I remember we travelled down on the train. And I think there's a picture, Dad. Is that right? When when Rush scores the 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 third goal, where yeah. I I've jumped up before it goes in. I had that much faith in it, and you can actually see me in the crowd with a white Lacoste tracksuit on. Uh, kind of jumping up before anybody else. Like a, a good few rows back at, at Wembley and then obviously Rushy's just about to hit it. But it was it was I remember going to the game and, and going to used to be we're quite lucky really. We used to get to go to Wembley quite a lot uh, as kids when when my dad was at Liverpool and then obviously the uh going to the parade on the way by, I think we did we meet at Speak Airport Dad? Would that be right? And that was the first one. Yeah, and then the bus left from there. So you you had a little bit of time on the bus before you actually got to people. Um, so it was it was fantastic. And obviously the players were drinking and that you know you you sports those, drink. Re, yeah, rehydration right. it was. Bob. Yeah, yeah, rehydration. Yeah, no carbohydrate drink with, uh, <laughs> with beer and so. But it was it was it was it was uh, brilliant because there was all that was downstairs and then we were upstairs i mean to be honest with you we only went at the front for a couple of t- uh, you know a couple of minutes and the the people took pictures but i think people like to get the kids at the front to try and get a picture and, and experience it as a family and that that was that was the thing about liverpool there was no it didn't matter who you were there was no superstars it was everybody that had family that wanted to bring them on the bus brought them on the bus and and, and everybody enjoyed it together it didn't matter what your role was. I mean, there was plenty of other kids on it as well. It was it was amazing, amazing memories that uh, that, that I'll never forget. And it's something now that, that I always try and do now. If 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 I ever have any success, I try and get the kids on the pitch because it meant so much to me uh, when when I used to celebrate it with, with my dad. Let's not I think, I think, Sorry, I think also at that time, maybe because I'd been in the dressing room, yeah. there was a, there was a great camaraderie amongst the boys and. Obviously, being in part of the dressing room 
just the season before. We all used to go together with the wives and have a laugh and a joke. And by the way, the football sometimes got in the way of our social life. But we, we, we got our way through it and started to play. But the, the people, the, the boys in and amongst there and the women, I mean, Marina used to organise the, when they were going to Wembley for a game. She used to organise her, their schedule for the Friday and then come to the game on the Saturday. And if you'd won, the wife would go, oh, we've won. Did we have to go out? Because they'd been out the night before and <laughs> been bladdered. So it was a great, it was a great atmosphere within the place. And a lot of those, a lot of the boys that played then are still in and around the club now. And it's, it's, it's always great to see them. So that, that is a huge important part of being a successful football team. And I think Man City have that. They've got a great dressing room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we look as if we've got that as well now. So let's uh, fast forward through 1987, which was a rare barren year on the trophy front for the club, and look at what happened in 1988. Now, uh, earlier this week, listeners should have heard me speaking to uh, John Barnes on our Legend Lowdown show, and you would have heard some previous chats also with uh, Peter Beardsley on the same show. Alongside John Aldridge, they formed arguably the best forward line some of us have uh, ever seen, certainly in my lifetime, But and they're probably right up there with Messrs Salah, Firmino and Mane uh, in, from the current crop. Uh, both John and Peter were quick to credit Liverpool and their methods for how easy it was for them to settle in and feel at home at the club. Uh, Kenny, looking back, how certain were you that replacing Ian Rush with uh, Barnes, Beardsley and Aldridge was the way to go? Now, obviously, we know the result was good, but how uh, how confident were you when you signed those three guys? No, well, we knew Rush was gone. Uh, and we signed Aldo in the January. And then um, when when the season was finished and with an empty cupboard. Um, we then, we went for John Barnes and Peter um, because that's what we needed. We needed people, if you're going to put Aldo up front, you need somebody to feed him. So, those two could feed him and then we, we started to look for somebody on the right-hand side and about October, just after the season started, we signed Ray Houghton and, and Ray Houghton was, a, was an impressive player as well. His distribution, he played with Aldo at Oxford, so they had a great understanding. And Aldo, Aldo, uh, was fundamental to us because all the lads could come out, come out of the box and pass and move and, and get involved in the game. And Aldo loved to score goals, so we needed somebody that could score goals, put an end to all their work, and Aldo did that prolifically. So, uh, sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong, but fortunately this time we got we got them right. And we also signed, uh, I think, Nigel Spikeman had come in as well. So we, we spent a few quid. Dad, can I ask a question? Did was that the did that feel more like your team, like your Liverpool team, than than the double team? Because you'd obviously, as a manager, not as a player, but as a manager, did you feel more that that was your team? No, not really. Because if if you're in charge of the team, it's your team. It doesn't matter yeah. where the players have come from, who signed yeah. them. You've still got to manage them. You've still got to select them. And you've got to get your decisions right more often than wrong. But if you look at the double team and look the year before, we had the, we we made a few changes, but they went quiet. In October, um, for example, Phil Neal and Alan Kennedy left the club. Mm. So there's a guy who scored the winning goal in two European Cup finals, and yeah. uh, against Man U at Wembley. Four, and yeah. and Phil Neal, who was Phil Neal, four he's, European he's, Cups. He's got more. He's got more medals than anybody. More medals so than they, Man United. Well. So we had to make European to make Cups anyway. Well, we had to there make a couple of changes, and it didn't. That wasn't. It wasn't pleasant. But then, it wasn't pleasant coming home if you didn't think you'd done your your best day's work. So, for me, it was it was sad to see them go, but they had to go to bring in and press the club up. And then we brought in. I think Jim Beglin came in, and uh, Stevie Nichol came in. Jan Moby started to play more often. Steve uh, well. Craig Johnson started playing. They signed Steve McMahon because his wife kept chanting my door and saying, <laughs> "Going to ask him to come home." So, 
So we had we did make a few changes. Uh, I never played as often as I had done in previous seasons. Paul Wall started for the first half of the season and did did a fantastic job and then get injured and, and then I had to get the track so often come on and play. But we've also made a huge contribution to that season. So there, there were a, there were a few changes. Um but obviously only the one signing. I think it was just the one signing in Marker. And Paul, so we changed it. But you put, you, put your own, you put your own stamp on it within the, the squad, really, apart from Steve McMahon, rather than bringing in players from the outside. But that was well, that was the way Liverpool was. That you, I mean, the the reserve team won the league every year as well. And, and you had to be a good player to get... Liverpool used to sign players and play them in the reserves for, for, for a period of time to get them used to the way Liverpool played. So there was... We we did have changes. There was changes behind the scenes as well. There was one or two wee twists in, in training that we never that we hadn't done before. But as I say, everybody that was involved there made a contribution, and that's the most important thing. I mean, you hear people coming in at half time. You say, "Oh, I made a change at half time, and we were better in the second half." Yeah, but you also made a right in the first half because you were crap. Yeah. So, so for me, it's no it's no about one individual. It's about everybody. And everybody should share and enjoy it as much as each other. You talk about the twists in training there, and when when we've had Peter Beardsley on the phone before, he's always said that uh, he's always said that it was just five sides. Is that is, is that really true? Is it just five sides? And he also said that your team always had to win. Of course. Well, Shank started that, so it just it just became a tradition. The manager had to win. Uh, <laughs> but but no, it was five sides. But they were all conditioned games. So they were done, with, the five-a-side was done for a purpose. And if you never did it right, if, if it wasn't doing right, we would change and go and do something else. But Dad, I, I used to go, I used to take me in when I was younger and I used to kick the ball against the wall and then and then uh, come back. But it, at the end of the day, you'd, it, it wasn't people, it was five-a-sides and maybe the players didn't understand the level of detail that went into it. But I remember when you you came home, Dad, with the Ronnie Moran's logbook from oh, from training. And yeah. even back, players, the best thing you can do as a manager is make the players think it's simple, even if it's not simple. Because ultimately, it's much easier for them to understand then and much easier for them to feel confident and believe in it. But Liverpool wasn't just five asides. If, if Liverpool needed to to work in in uh, in finishing, they played to big goals. If they wanted to work on possession, they played to small goals. If they needed fitness, they'd make the pitch bigger. If yeah. they needed sharpness, they'd make the pitch smaller. And, and Ronnie Moran and the, the the boot room would write down the day, what the weather was, uh, every the whole report in a in a in an A4 book of everything, who trained, who didn't train, what they did, and and they had all the names for the different sessions. But it wasn't, they would meet and decide what the players needed uh, on a daily basis. And well, it, was, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a daily basis. But they, t- they kept a note of the training we did, but they would meet. I mean, that, that, that what we did was probably the same work as it was the year before. Yeah. So they had everything. But they had, it's like what they do nowadays. They know everything. But if you were tired, if you were tired, then they'd say, "Let's we'll do a little bit less today." They 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 yeah. they, are ju- they didn't need heart rate monitors to know if you were tired, or they didn't need heart no. rate monitors to know if you needed fitness. No, but they they had so much experience and got yeah. so much right. But they did refer year on year to their books, and they yeah. look back and see what they'd done the year before, and and it, it was they were they were ahead of their time. Yeah. Well ahead of their time, yeah, and people used to say, "Well, not more method, no, just organised. It's common sense, really. It was common sense, but they did. They kept a note of what was happening, and who got treatment, who was injured, what we did, and people kept saying, "Well, what's the secret of Liverpool? Well, if you've got a secret, you're not going to tell anybody, are you? That's why it's a secret." <laughs> and <laughs> Dad, the other the other part the other part that I you, two people can put on the same session because people used to come and watch Liverpool train, and then you know people used to want to come and try and learn the secret and come and watch Liverpool train. 
it doesn't it doesn't matter. Two people can put on the same session and get totally different results. If it's a, you can give somebody the same ingredients to make a meal, and everyone's going to make it taste different. And and that I think the most important thing that the boot room created was a culture of 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 hard work and a culture of of, of commitment to every training session. I mean, I, I'm telling you now that the that the sessions were every bit as intense as your game was on the Saturday. You trained how you played, whereas that's not the case in, in a lot of other clubs where people kind of... Yeah, but, but Paul, we weren't, we weren't interested in any other clubs. No. We were all interested in us. Um, what Shanks had set up all the years ago, we were getting a huge benefit from that. And everybody that's passed through the doors at Liverpool since Shanks had, had been there should be eternally grateful that man because he's the one that set it on its way and Ronnie and Roy and old Tom Pierre Robert they all, they all, everybody had a wee bit of shanks in them because of what the the contribution he'd made and um, so for us yeah you could put the same session on as somebody else and get a different result but that's why they were so good because they got so many brilliant results but the the point I'm trying to make is it wasn't the five sides; it was the it's standards fine. that they'd created of of and the intensity that they demanded from training. It was the I content. Mean, it was the content of the five side. Uh, content, yeah. and it was what they their con their verbal contributions towards the five side that was that was hugely important. And people could come and watch, take their notes. I mean, there was there's loads of them came. But I think they went away scratching their head. <laughs> <laughs> but where they were brilliant was after the game, when I became manager, they always they had the boot room. And after the game, the visit managers used to used to come in that, for a drink. But I never went into the home to, to see the manager in the, the boot room at the home games. I went in away from home in a physio's room or something, just a, just a drink. Because I saw them working away from home, and by the way, they were forensic in their in their, in their uh, quest to get information from the opposition. And the first thing they'd say if we'd won, they'd walk into the opposition and go, "Well, that's just got a job for another week." <laughs> Honestly, they were unbelievably, unbelievably, um, what do you call it? Humble. No, shy, red eye, humble, and yeah. the way of life and. So I thought, there's no way I'm going into the, the boot room at Anfield because I'll I start laughing or something because they pumped them for information and they never even knew. <laughs> Find out who yeah, the best young players were or who was it. Oh, honestly, they used to. And it was like a confession box for the <laughs> managers going in. They used to be almost apologetic. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you I said, I'm staying, I'm, staying away, I'm staying away from you. <laughs> Paul, I always say that that 1988 side was one of the best I saw in my lifetime. Uh, not just Liverpool, of any of any team anywhere. Uh, we all know from your own podcasts here on AI Pro how big a fan you are of Jurgen Klopp and the current Liverpool team. So so how would you compare them to the 80 side, 88 side that your dad managed? Well, I think that team, the 88 team, was the best team in the country of their generation because they won. You know, I think this Liverpool team's a great team to watch. And and I think this can become a team that can be held in the same esteem uh, as that team. But they haven't won the league yet. For all the for all the good play and all the exciting football, we finished fourth last year. We we've got to win titles. You've got to win. You know, that it's it, I know football's about entertainment and winning's not enough. You look at Man United, they finished second, but the football was was not at an entertaining level. And Mourinho's not had a good summer, PR-wise. Liverpool finished fourth, but because of the style of football, we've had a, an amazing summer of goodwill. But to be a truly great team and to be a truly great player, you've got to win titles. And And this team hasn't won titles yet. But I genuinely believe there's something... There's something different about this year, and and I do think this is the year that they can do. And Kenny, 1989, 
90s saw you guide Liverpool to a third league title and remarkably all these years on still the last one the club has managed to win. There were always rumours in the press about a sabbatical and perhaps a quick fire return to Liverpool but your next move was to Blackburn Rovers and lo and behold you gained promotion and then went on to win the league. Incredibly with that climax Anfield of course. Now uh, what were your recollections of that special day? Well it, it's kind of, it was kind of a quick sentence there to gloss over for 89 to get to resigning and then to go into Blackburn. I mean, it must be two years. Because Blackburn, I went in October, didn't I? Was it 91 or 90, yeah, 90 or something? October 91, yes. Well, it was six months to sabbatical I had. Six or seven <laughs> months sabbatical was some holiday. <laughs> <laughs> no. You were a busy boy at yeah, Blackburn. You were, uh, you, were, you were getting Mr Walker's checkbook out, as I recall. Well, I think everybody that's ever won a trophy or everybody that's ever put a team on the pitch has spent money. Now, the level of the money that you spend, you spend is irrelevant. The most important thing is, or two things that are really important. Obviously, you don't overspend so the club don't get in trouble financially. And somebody tells you what you've got to spend. And secondly, whatever you spend it on, you've got to make sure that you're getting a return for them on the pitch. And as long as you, as long as you work within the budget that the club have and you, the club only getting themselves in financial difficulties, then... Uh, I don't think there's ever been anybody that's managed a club that's no brought somebody in. It doesn't matter how little it is. There's always money changes hand. But uh, the other thing, to your point, Dad, the Shearer was bought for 3.3 and sold for 15. Now, I know, Sutton, but that Sutton was sold for a profit. So if you look at if you look at the money that was spent, as to your point, you got more back in return. So obviously the players increased in value during yeah, but, their time with Blackburn. If you're going to use that as a rule of thumb, look how the transfer fees have gone up in the last two or three years. Yeah. So anybody that's ever bought somebody before the last two or three years has made a profit. Yeah. I mean, some of them are going for millions. Yeah. And about two or three years ago, you'd have been lucky to get 100,000 for them. Uh-huh. You know, that it's, was... it's, the, money's, the money's gone crackers. But that's why I'm saying it's no relevant, the figure that yeah. you buy them for. It's relevant. What they what they do on what the they produce, yeah. yeah, during because, the time there. Yeah, I remember I was just I had a conversation with somebody who's been in football for for a long time when when they were in Miami for the for preseason, and they were talking about a great manager and they said uh, they said it, it doesn't matter if you think they're worth it or not, if that's what they cost, then pay it. If that's the player that you want. And, and, want, yeah. yeah, and I think that's what Liverpool have done now. I don't want to, I mean, I think Liverpool with Alisson and Van Dijk, they're the people that Jurgen wanted and they've paid the money, whatever it cost. And I think you can see the, you can see the benefit in the team. But that Blackburn team, that I, I remember, that was, I think that was your biggest achievement in football. I, I genuinely do because if, if you look at taking a team from the, from the, regardless of money spent, anything else, if you take a team from, from the, the first division at the time and, and you win the Premier League within a couple of years, it, it's it's absolutely phenomenal what, what that team achieved. And Unbelievable. With you, and with what you were up against at the time as well. Yeah, uh, Man United was spending money, Liverpool was spending money, everybody was spending money. It wasn't just Blackburn. No, but Blackburn, Blackburn is, was a fantastic achievement and I'll tell you that uh, I alluded to it earlier about how good the dressing room should be. That was a great dressing room as well. I, I would doubt very much if there's been a team that's won a few titles and no had a good dressing room because it's really important. It's important when it's not going so well that they get together and the people in there get themselves organised and the dressing room sort itself out. Uh, not for the manager to be able to dodge it, but for the manager to be able to trust it. And the players... The players are strong, but they're strong. But they've got to be, they've got to be honest as well. If the dressing room's not right, then it's affecting their futures, as well as the guy who's who's doing the wrong in the in the dressing room. So, for us, the dressing room for me has always been really important. Um, yeah, there's got to be a barrier between the staff and the dressing room, but they should they should be as one, and. I don't know. I mean, they keep saying about people at, at clubs uh, having to go at directors when the clubs aren't going well or, or whatever. 
But the directors, why would you want to be a director? You must be a fan. So because you're a director, and it's the same with it's the same with the managers, they don't want to go home and have a bad result. Well, I never. I don't, I'm sure I'm in the majority here. You don't want to go home and have a weekend and you work all week for a game and then you've, you've been rubbish and you don't get a positive result. It's the same for the manager and it's the same for the the, the directors or the chairman. They must love that club. And when we went to Blackburn, Jack Walker loved the club. And he wanted to put some money in to see if he could move it forward. And the money was there, uh, or they were talking about the money before I went, because they were talking about signing Stevie Archibald for Tottenham. Or, and then they started talking about signing uh, Zinedine Sedan. And, and I said, these people, uh, they must be hallucinating. How, where are they going to get the money? And then when I got when I left Liverpool and a few more, a couple of months later, the start of the next season, I get a, a phone call. Would you be interested? And they came and spoke to us, and and they told us, and, and they they actually proved that they, they were going to have have a go and spend spend some money, try and get out the the championship into the Premier League for its starting or the year after. So everybody spent money. Uh, but I think the days of the, the people like Jack Walker at football clubs, I don't think people, I think at that time, Liverpool was similar with David Moore there, who was a fantastic supporter and just bled Liverpool Football Club. But the game get get too big and David obviously had to sell it on. But, but I don't think, I don't think there's that many places now where the people who are directors or owners of the club actually have the same affinity to that club. Dad, was, was Zinedine Zidane not uh, after you'd got to the Premier League? Because I remember him and Dugarry were, were two players that were looked at for Blackburn, weren't they? Ah, but it wasn't me. No, no. But no. They, were getting, but, they were getting mentioned by all sorts. Yeah. yeah. Talking about the changes in the game then that your dad just mentioned there, Paul, you joined Liverpool yourself as a player in the youth team in 1996. Yeah. So one of your dad's management colleagues, who he just mentioned there, Roy Evans, had replaced Graham mm. Souness by this stage. Uh, how much had the club changed by then from what you had known as a kid? Well, it's funny. I was. Uh, it was still pretty similar because Roy obviously shared the same ethos that... that uh, that my dad spoke about so glowingly earlier on and, and Ronnie Moran was still there. The The hardest thing for me was coming to terms with the fact I was at Liverpool and the, the pressure of expectation and, and maybe there was, maybe I felt more expectation because of what my dad's achieved there or, or but I, it was, it took me maybe a year to feel, to feel uh, comfortable with the, the pressure of expectation. I mean, you, you've got to you've got to think. Like I, I was, I grew up going to Liverpool games when I was a youth player. I loved John Barnes. He was he was my my favourite player at Liverpool in, in the team at the time. And he'd come into the he'd come into the players' lounge and he'd say, "Hey, how many goals did you score this morning?" And I was a kid running around and saying. Then it, one day he'd come in with Theodora boots and give me a pair of boots, or you know. And he was now. Fast forward, I'm playing with John Barnes. I'm playing with with these people that that I'd idolised, and it was surreal. It was surreal because the club now, if I'd have joined now and I was 19 when it, when I joined Liverpool, then I wouldn't have even seen the first team because I'd have been at the academy in a different location. But now, all of a sudden, I'm training at the same facility as 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 John Barnes and. And, and and Robbie Fowler and, and and players, you know Steve McManaman and players, and I'm 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 eating in the same canteen as them. You know, if if somebody got injured and they shout you over uh, to to close out the session, or you know if you had to play a game, they needed a game against the first team. You know, you're coming in on a on a Monday morning after you played for the A team, and and they'd be saying, "Who scored? How did you do? Well done." And it was it was very very hard for me to deal with, as I said, just because you. It's so surreal, but when when I, but it was it was very very similar to what it was. What I would say was it was at the moment when all the healthy eating was coming in with the, the foreign influence to the Premier League, and you had Roy Evans, Ronnie Moran, 
that generation. And then you had, you know, and then you had players, some players that were embracing it, and then you had players. And I love Neil Ruddock, but I remember one time Neil Ruddock comes in and, and uh, he says, when they can prove, prove pasta and prove my touch, I'll start eating pasta. But until then, I mean, whatever I want, right? And, and it was, it was, you know, the, so you had kind of the mentality of, I mean, Dad, your pre-match meal you, was what? When you, when you played Friday, day before a game? No. You buy a chocolate? I mean, when I was 17, when I was at Celtic, um, but, and I went full time, and uh, my mum was giving us my pre-match meal, and I was in the house. She said, what do you want? I said, well, what have you got? She said, sausage rolls. I said, that'll do. So I got sausage rolls and beans from a pre-match. <laughs> and I was running about the pitch in the afternoon. I was going, what? What? <laughs> I was nearly coming up. We never got told. Right, what, yeah. what, to, what to have is a pre-match meal. And then uh, I ended up with scrambled egg and baked beans. But what then, but you'd have a, a Friday night. On a Friday night when we were here, Big Al lived, Big Hanson lived in the corner. He was, uh, he was on his own. So, your ma used to put on a Friday night dinner for us. Uh, plate of soup, tomato soup, Heinz tomato soup. I'm, I'm not advertising, I'm just telling you. And then, uh, steak pie, boiled potatoes, uh, processed peas, uh, and then, Apple pie and custard. That was my Friday night dinner. So, so for me, that that tells you that was the biggest difference because obviously players that played in that generation were now transitioning into kind of the new generation, and, and Liverpool put in uh, the the canteen, and they were making meals now, and you had the people that wanted to eat the healthy stuff, and the people that wanted to keep eating what they'd always eat. And it was uh, that was the biggest change for me. Not not really the the on the field. I remember coming home to to my dad and saying, "Hey, we did this today in preseason." And there was a, a session that you used to do. It was called the envelope or something, Dad, where where you had to you had to run this a certain route. And no, the big picture, the big picture, big picture, and, and you were and close, I, Paul. Envelope, yeah, <laughs> envelope, big yeah, picture. Yeah. <laughs> I was, yeah, but anyway, whatever it was. And then there was the other one where you had to. Sprint one, then jog some, then sprint two, and then jog. And a lot of the uh, sessions that we did that I was doing, I'd phone my dad and he said, yeah, we did that. That's that one. You'll do this on this day. You'll do this on that day. There was another one where you played 77 on a full-size pitch. Full-size. And then you'd go onto the boards and play 77 on there. And then you would work in kind of uh, all the different areas. And and that was the – now, if you if you actually – the game's kind of evolved in, into where it's it's almost gone back to what Liverpool did back then. I remember phoning my dad and saying, hey, Dad, the latest concepts in football are to get football fitness from football games, but changing the changing the, the pitch sizes or changing the amount of players or changing the, the stipulations of the game to get whichever fitness aspect of the game that you want out of it. So you're actually playing football and making football decisions to get fitter at playing football. Whereas there was a period in football where you'd run without the ball to try and get fit. But that's not relevant football fitness. And, and well, Liverpool I, did that. Liverpool did that. And but, as my dad but, said, they were ahead of the time, as we discussed earlier, and it's now going back to that. But it is relevant to run without the ball because, I mean, many times you see teams with very, very little possession. But you still have to make a decision. Running I know, but you still ball, need to work. You still need to work on your fitness. Correct, but you can work on your fitness while at the same time you're making decisions, and the same time you have to have awareness. If you have to change direction, it's a totally different type of fitness to running in a straight line or running around the track with a stopwatch. And and what what football is going back to now is the type of sessions that I remember doing during pre-season when I was at Liverpool. That the game went away from with sports science coming to it and, 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 and coaches looked at other sports to try and learn and improve football. And football is now going back to playing football to get better at football in some situations. Not all, but there's a lot of cutting edge uh, 
uh, research that is saying that is the best way to get fit and the best way to 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 uh, the best way to get better at playing football is by playing football and you can't train you can't train fit football fitness in isolation of making decisions okay <laughs> Sounds like you've got agreement there. We're talking about. Well, this is, but this is, this is. I went back to earlier, and I said <laughs> that is the science behind it. But you don't want play. You don't need players to know that. The simpler like, you can have players think it is, the better. Yeah. So it's right, next rumbling. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted one thing on the pre-match meals because yeah. uh, I was speaking to John Barnes this week, and he was telling me but that before away games there was a, uh, a, a little detour into Toxteth for some jerk chicken before away games. Oh, and that one had me chuckling. No, it used to get delivered. Oh right, he kind of implied that the coach, uh, the coach used to run into Toxteth, and that's the that's the vision it's that I had in the my head. The coach. Yeah, it was his mate Charlie. Charlie used to bring it up. Oh, the, ta- the boy that was driving him around in the taxis. Aye, in the taxis. <laughs> and then he was a the, DJ, Charlie C. Aye. aye. And, yeah. and the, the Scottish boys had uh, uh, jock pies, We jock pies. They used to heat us up uh, a dozen jock pies so we could eat them peas, on the way down in the bus. With peas and brown sauce. Always. <laughs> I don't think it could stretch to the peas, I think. <laughs> Mate, the three cleaners used to cook my lunch for us. They used to put their, their mops in and cook his lunches. <laughs> now that would probably be about 12 jobs within a football club. Oh, oh so, you want to get the pies, eh? Oh, definitely not. Well, listeners, that seems like an ideal place to draw to a close this very first episode of The King and AI here on AI Pro. Uh, what happens here from this show going forward is genuinely up to you. Uh, we'd love to hear your comments. And if you're interested in hearing more podcasts with Kenny and Paul going forward, please do let us know. We have loads of ideas and the overriding objective of this podcast will be to help with fundraising for the Marina Dalglish Appeal, a charity started by uh, Kenny's wife, Paul's mum, Marina, to improve the lives of cancer patients. Uh, an admirable cause which has already achieved uh, so much. And uh, you can read more about that at www.marinadalglishappeal.org. That's the place to go to read more about uh, that charity. The best way to give us your comments and feedback on this show is via Twitter. Feel free to send them to both at uh, Anfield Index Pro and at Kenneth Dalglish. So there, there, there's the place to give your comments. Uh, hopefully you've enjoyed listening to this podcast just as much as Gags, myself, Kenny and Paul have enjoyed making it for you. All that remains for me then is to thank Mr. Paul Dalglish. Thank you, Paul. And of course, the one and only, the great Sir Kenny Dalglish. So, Gags, we've just had the first ever podcast with King Kenny Dalgleish on Anfield Index. Uh, how proud a moment is that for you as the, as the founder of this baby? Amazing, man. So amazing. And, uh, you know, it, it's a, it's one of those moments that you're just, you're never going to forget. I, I got to speak to him today one on one when I did the sound check as well for 15 minutes. And it was supposed to be a 20 second thing, but you know, the, the man that he is. You just, you know, you just end up talking. You just end up talking and he's so engaging. He's one of those people that just, he's, yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a legend for a reason, you know. He's an absolutely, he's an absolutely great man as well, which is, uh, made me comfortable within seconds of talking to him, you know, cause the story goes, I might as well tell you the story, Eddie. I'm taking over now. Um, basically I sound checked him and I couldn't hear, he couldn't hear me. I was talking away. He couldn't hear me. And we, we cancelled the call a couple of times and he couldn't hear me. I was like, what's going on? So I went and checked my settings and the mic was off. It wasn't working. So I had to quit Skype and open it again to get the connection back. Then I called him and I said, oh, you know, my mic wasn't working. Your setup was totally fine. And he goes, well, Gags, I'm glad one of us knows what we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) And immediately, and I just, you know what I'm like? I just burst out laughing. So immediately it was just like the nerves were gone that I'm talking to this legend, this idol person that I've loved, you know, all my life basically it's crazy moment crazy moment i mean it must be the same for you as well but we then just talked about so many things about ai pressing stats and the differences between now and then it could have been a little mini pot on its own eddie yeah there's a lot of stuff there the uh the outtakes would have been good fun i mean it, it was absolutely brilliant conversation a really enjoyable evening and uh I think he was on the phone in the end for around two hours to kind of put the pieces together and the and the chat before and after which was quite incredible now uh this one uh this first episode of uh 
the King and AI we've got now on the on the free side. Everyone's going to get a chance to listen to the, the King Makers uh, so Makers pro, podcast yeah. debut. Yeah, yeah. So pro people, pro guys, you do get priority. Don't worry. It's after two days we put it out on the free side. Don't worry. Yeah. We do like to give a, a little bit more to our subscribers, so that's the plan there. But everyone will get to listen to this, and uh, and part two will uh, will will follow on next week, guys. And it will be only for pro, okay? So that's where the kicker comes in, folks. It's only for pro, the part two. So if you're listening to this and you're on the free side and you're listening on the free side, there's another 40, 45 minutes to go yet. We've cut it halfway, uh, not very cleanly. Because we didn't plan for this. We didn't think it would go an hour and a half. So there's another 45 minutes there for you. Uh, but you know, you'll have to take advantage of uh, the special offer on AI Pro, which is at the moment, isn't it? You only got a few, few days left. If they're listening to the free side now, it's, uh, it's nearly the end of August. We may, we may have to extend that because of this pod. We may just have to extend that into September. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That offer uh, is that you can have the whole 12 months on AI Pro. For uh, a, a special offer price of thirty nine ninety nine, so that's the uh, that's the offer that's on. And as Gag said, we may extend that into the first week of September just to give you a chance to take advantage of that. Obviously, there is the monthly option as well, uh, only four pounds ninety nine, which is has remained throughout. And remember, it's all available on anfieldindex.com forward slash join. You can also join from the app, but the special offer is not on there on the iOS app. So make sure if you do want to take advantage of that thirty nine ninety nine offer, which is basically works out to three pounds. 33 a month it's crazy money we do over 30 pods as well a, a month so three pound 33 for 30 pods what you're waiting for you know you should buy our hands off of that annual deal but 4.99 a month as well if you're not looking you know if you don't want to do the the annual thing like ellie just said but yeah amfordindex.com forward slash join we'll draw a close to this uh this first ever episode now of the king and ai the second one is in the can, and uh, who knows? Maybe there'll be a third, a fourth, a fifth, and all that. But let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Until next time, up the Reds. Sports Social Podcast Network.